What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Appreciate you listening. With me this week is my friend Jason Romero. He is a runner. He's actually run across the United States. He's a public speaker talking to tiny little companies you may have heard of like Amazon or Coors. And back in December when we met, he had just released a book, Running Into the Dark. And I thought it was a fascinating story. Super nice guy. We had uh, some beers and some pizza together. And I thought that he would just be a wonderful guest with a fascinating story. And so with that, welcome, Jason. Thanks for being on. Hey, Matt. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So the thing that I was blown away by is your accomplishment. And uh, for people that haven't heard your story, tell us, um, tell us about the little run you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened was, uh, it was actually at this point, it was maybe like almost just under two years ago. Uh, I set out from Santa Monica pier in Los Angeles, California, and I ran 51 and a half miles a day. And after two months time, I ended up at New York city hall, uh, on May 23rd. And that, uh, accounted for the longest run of my life, obviously. And it really was the linchpin and underlying event for the book that I ended up writing. So 51 miles a day. And then how many consecutive days did that take? So I ran every day for 59. It it ended up being 59 and a half days. I didn't take any days off. And, um, the last couple days actually ended up being the longest days. And I'm not sure how that happened. The last, the second last day was 60 miles. The very last day was 70 miles. And I think it was more or less one of those things where you just want to finish and be done with it. And uh, I was running really on fumes and, and pure adrenaline. It was, uh, it, it was amazing. So like a 50 mile day, um, what's your pace and how long would that take you? Sure. So at the beginning, early on in the run, I'd say probably for the first 30 days, I was able to finish 50 miles in 10 to 12 hours. There were even a couple of days I was close to nine hours for that. Um, the pacing would range anywhere between eight minute miles to 12 minute miles. And that kind of depended on terrain. You know, some, sometimes you're going across deserts and it's really hot. Sometimes you're going up mountain passes or down mountain passes or through storms or that type of thing. Um, the last 30 days, I would add two minutes onto those times I told you before. And really I was at probably 10 to 14 minutes per mile. And, uh, it, you know, you just ended up getting worn down, uh, over time, but, uh, 95% actually of my miles were actually running, shuffling, jogging, and probably about 5% of those miles were actually walking. Hmm. <clears throat> so the thing that I'm, I think there's two questions here. So obviously you don't go into, excuse me, running 50 miles a day across the country without some physical preparation. And I'm guessing that there was 
an event for that mental challenge. Can you take us through both of those, like the, the physical training side and then where this idea actually came from? Sure. And this is actually a great segue into the book because the book uh, you know delves into this. There's kind of part three parts to the book. Part one of the book is kind of who am I and the details of you know, who's this madman who went about this thing. Part two really outlines the training and preparation and fundraising. And then part three talks about the run in and of itself. And you know, the preparation for this took 18 months um, just in advance. And that's all that I did. I, I wasn't working. I focused hundred percent on the run. Um, there was physical and mental training. And during that time period, I ran six races of hundred miles or longer. And some of those are pretty epic runs. Uh, one was the Havelina hundred miler. I staged also a hundred mile run, uh, in Denver, just around the park, uh, ran the Badwater ultra marathon, 135 miles through death Valley in July. I tried Spartathlon in Greece. I only got to hundred miles there. Um, the keys 100 and there's another hundred mile in there somewhere. Um, but th- there was a significant buildup block to try to prepare my body so that I wouldn't end up with stress fractures, that type of thing. And I tried to train myself to run on, uh, concrete asphalt, you know, the types of surfaces and terrain that my body would encounter in a transcontinental run. The other thing that I had to do really, uh, after about a year of training, I realized that the hardest part really is not going to be physical you know, the physical, uh, battering because either my body would handle it or it wouldn't, it would be the mental aspect. And I've learned that from running the ultras throughout my life. And really, you know, um, all that it takes is, you know, uh, one decision to give in to negative thoughts and then, you know, it's done and it's over. And, uh, you know, part of my story actually is that I have this degenerative eye condition and, uh, I, at this point I'm legally blind. My eyesight is, uh, 2,200 to 2,400, depending on the day. And I actually have a, a tunnel that I look through. So I have 20 degrees of eyesight. I don't have peripheral vision. Um, but, uh, what I, what I did to try to really torture myself in addition to putting my body through this type of mileage, I would go out and I would run in the dark alone by myself and I have night blindness. So I try to use headlamps, that type of thing, but inevitably I run into signs, trees, uh, you know, trip, fall, all that stuff. And I would just go out and I would train every uh, day in the dark and I hated it. And I really hate to run in that environment. But the idea was basically to torture myself and get myself to the point where I wouldn't quit. Um, and just try to build up that mental stamina and endurance, uh, to be able to be prepared for you know, what I, what I thought I would encounter on the run. Sure. <clears throat> well, yeah. And that's something, you know, as a fledgling amateur interviewer, I didn't point out that you ran 51 miles a day across the country and you're legally blind. And that's just, uh, you know, an extra challenge on top of all that. And, um, when did the, when did that disease start affecting your eyesight? Sure. I was diagnosed actually when I was 14 years old when I was in middle school and uh, I didn't even realize there was anything going on with my eyes. I went to the nurse's office for a routine eye and ear exam and apparently I couldn't read the eye chart as, you know, as low as I could. They thought there was just a problem with my acuity. I went to like lens crafters. They tried to fit me with glasses, but realized soon that my lenses in my eyes were fine. It was actually something wrong with my retina. I have a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And at that point in time, the doctor told me I would have no light perception by the time I was 30. 
Uh, I said, forget about my dream of being a doctor, a lawyer, and that most blind people don't work. Basically gave me a death sentence. And the good news was I was 14 years old, teenager, and anybody who has teenagers knows that teenagers don't listen to adults, and I didn't either at that time. <laughs> so I just uh, you know went on about my business. But um, over time, uh, you know, the disease has taken my eyesight to a point now where, you know, I, I like to think that I have functional eyesight. Um, but eye doctors don't think that, and I don't drive. I voluntarily quit driving years ago. Uh, and those had, you know, significant changes on my life. Yeah. And I couldn't even imagine that diagnosis at 14. Um, I mean, this is the, the not, not to try to equate it, but I lost my mom when I was 20 and being younger, did it ever, I mean, you sound incredibly positive now. And like you were talking about those negative thoughts during the run, being positive is something that has to be worked on every single day, every hour, sometimes second by second. Did you ever feel hopeless about that diagnosis? Yeah, sure. Definitely. And I feel hopeless, uh, you know, I, almost on a daily basis, uh, I end up in that point. You know, it's kind of interesting that you say that because you say I sound like a very positive guy and I always get that type of feedback, but, uh, you know, I'm human just like anybody else. And you know, my, my eye disease is the same as something everybody else has. Everybody's struggling with something. Um, you know, depression, anorexia, autism, ADD, OC, whatever it may be. Uh, that, that's just my particular struggle that I, you know, have worked with my my entire life. Um, what I found though is that you know there there obviously are those times when we focus a lot and uh, we get suckered into, if you will, into that negativity zone and and difficulty. But at the end of the day. You know, what I realized and you know, really what I realized during this run was it's attitude uh, and attitude is, is going to be your ultimate arbiter for either fulfilling your destiny or, uh, <laughs> you know, going headfirst into your doom. And that happened many times when I was out there on the run. I mean, there were times when, you know, an, an animal would chase me or I just about get clipped by a car or, you know, whatever, something would happen or it could be related to my eyes or not related to my eyes, but there would be a, a, an onslaught of negative thoughts that would just come crushing into my mind. And I would have every reason and excuse to quit, to go home. I had three children, uh, that I left. I'd never left before, you know, they're waiting for me at home and I didn't know if I was going to make it back from this thing. Um, and really it was, you know, it was a decision. Uh, it was a decision point. And there were a lot of emotions surrounding that just like we have with anything or any challenges that we have that are difficult in our life. But, um, you know, it was really an intellectual choice to say, I need to choose to be positive. I know that I'm going through something right now, but I also know if I'm patient and I'm calm, uh, the sun is going to rise in the morning. This situation that's troubling me right now will, will get better. Uh, it will not seem as bad as it seems right now, uh, in a day, a week, a month. And, uh, you just continue to move on, you know, and it's, that's kind of a life lesson. I think that we all know, but we all really need to be reminded of on a daily basis. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. It's funny that sun keeps coming up, doesn't it? I know that there's been times that, you know, what I call that, that kill zone, death zone, whatever the hopeless zone between like, Oh, it's probably like two thirty to three forty-five, where it's like, <laughs> it's pretty goddamn dark. 
<laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Darkest right before the dawn, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're cliches because they're true, but still it doesn't make it any easier to tolerate or swallow. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So what, uh, yeah, what animals definitely. chased you, Jason? <laughs> you mentioned you got chased by animals. You have to run well, across the country. So, they, yeah, there were some, uh, some, some, uh, really terrifying stories and some stories that I joke about too. Uh, there was one animal that I, you know, I, I don't see that well, but I can see pretty much shapes, you know, that's a, some type of four legged animal, what have you. But one time I was in Arizona and running us through the desert and there was a berm of sand off to my left. And I was running against traffic up a hill and this, I, I call it a devil dog because it looked like it had like the head of a hyena and, it was different colored. I swear there was like a third arm, you know, or an arm sticking out of the side of it, frothy like Cujo. And, uh, I was just screaming at it and it forced me on the road. Semi came over the top of the hill, you know, swerved, missed me, blew the horn. It was, it was crazy disaster. And, and then the animal just kind of like ran back off over the hill. Uh, that was kind of a scary one. There was, there were other ones where I was chased by a wild pack of chihuahuas. <laughs> that I like to joke about, but those little guys, when they nip at your ankles, it's kind of scary. Uh, there was another time, a lot of dogs out there. Uh, one time I was running around the, down the road and there were a bunch of sheep up on a hill, like in a farm, penned up and they were bagging. And you know, I would talk to animals right out there because you know, you're isolated running by yourself 10, 12 hours a day. So you start talking to animals. It's really weird. And, um, I was bad back and forth to these sheep. And all of a sudden I heard like a wolf. I was like, Oh my gosh, sheep, sheep dog. Yeah. And I get curling down this driveway, you know, it's white and gray, but it's not in the movies. They, they're like really friendly. This one looked like it was going to eat me. And, uh, I started running as fast as I could. And by the time it got to the road, I was about 30 yards past, you know, kind of like the property zone. So it, it did not give chase to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, uh, yeah, that was a pretty scary one. Yeah. You know, plenty of, plenty of crazy animals out there. So I think you saw a chupacabra. <laughs> that was on my run across Puerto Rico, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it could have been a chupacabra in, Puerto, in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. So one, one other question crazy. about your eyesight, is it continuing to degenerate at, at some point? Are you going to be completely blind? Yeah, that's what they, so that's what they say. Um, and a lot of my colleagues, uh, or my people in my cohort, same age demographic that have the same eye disease, disease as me, um, really don't see much. So the classic type of eye degeneration that I have is where your eyesight deteriorates from the outside in, you lose your peripheral vision. So right now I liken my eyesight to looking through like a couple of uh, toilet paper cartons, mm. if they were put directly together and you held one in front of each of your eyes. So when you, if I looked at a person and say, I was like sitting two feet away from you, I would see your eyes and your nose, but I'd have to move my face or my eyes to scan to pick up your ears and you know, your neck and that type of thing. I see just through a tunnel. That tunnel, they say, deteriorates to where it's like you're looking through straws. The tunnel continues to close, then you're looking through pinholes and then you know there's nothing when your retina totally dies. And a lot of my colleagues right now, my contemporaries, it's like they're looking through straws. Um, for some reason, you know, my, the, my retina is not degenerate, degenerated at the same rate. So I knock on wood and, you know, continue to do the things I do, which is basically exercise a lot, try to get plenty of sleep. 
keep my stress levels low and uh, eat decent. I don't go overboard, just kind of moderate on everything with the exception of exercise probably. And, uh, you know, my, my eyes appear to be holding steady. Um, there is a lot of work right now with one organization in particular, the foundation fighting blindness. They're actually working on a cure for my disease. And, um, I just actually spoke a couple days ago about possibly participating in a clinical trial where they are injecting stem cells into the eye and they've been able to restore some eyesight or basically some retinal function, um, in uh, some patients, so uh, I'm looking further into that, and you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always curious about it. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, I talk to some folks. And they're like, "Yeah, maybe there'll be a cure," but you know, I, I have to assume that you know I'm just gonna eventually not have any light perception, and that's how I'll go through life. And if there's, uh, if there is a cure or something like that, that'll be great. It'll be like icing on the cake. But you know, I got to just prepare myself, embrace myself for you know what I've been told, which is eventually there'll be lights out. Wow. <clears throat> well, and it, it sounds like we share a similar philosophy. Like I, I have done a lot of work on just being optimistic. One of the books, I don't know if we talked about that when we were having pizza, but learned optimism by Martin Seligman, where you, you have to prepare yourself for that. And it's a fine line between going down the, you know, feeling sorry for yourself or feeling depressed about it, but just managing the situation and staying in the moment. Like, yeah, it would be great if your site was restored, but, um, just preparing for what is that reality. So. Yeah. And you know, I, I think I, I really appreciate that you brought up that philosophy because there's a couple things that you touched on there. Um, and part of my journey that I you know, outlined in this book is when I was first diagnosed with this eye disease from age 14 until probably I was about 44, I was really just, I used denial, what I call denial to cope with it. And whether mm-hmm. you know that resulted in optimism or not, it was just, it was outright denial. And I faked being sighted, even though, you know, for probably like from age 30 until I was 44, I was legally blind, but I faked being sighted. You know, I was in a working world. I used to be an attorney. I used to be a business executive at GE. And, you know, I'd you know be talking to people, running into poles, walking off of curbs. And I wouldn't tell these people, um, you know, I'm legally blind uh, because I was so scared and afraid of what they would think of me or whether I'd be able to hold the job down or whether, you know, I would, you know, basically whether this disease would make me seem more like less of a person to them. And, you know, at age 44, uh, which, which really began the genesis of this run. Uh, I, I, what I say, came out of the closet as a blind person, and I you know, just accepted it. Basically, I couldn't fake it anymore, and I voluntarily quit driving because I knew my eyesight had deteriorated to that level, and I had to look myself in the mirror and say, you know, it's not safe. You're a danger to yourself and other people if you're operating a motor vehicle. And that really upended everything. I was a single parent, um, uh, had lost uh, a job at the time, uh, and I sunk into a... a clinical depression. And, uh, it was, it was really bad. And I was spiraling down. Uh, I did seek out counseling from a professional professional, obviously a psychologist and, you know, went to counseling for a year and a half and, um, ended up running my way. <laughs> what I say is running my way out of the depression. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was the beginning of the Genesis for this run across America. Really. Um, you know, the, the real story for how it began was, 
when, uh, you know, there've been many times in my life where I've had you know, some downs, down spells when I got divorced and, you know, went through career transition changes. And I always volunteer at this homeless shelter in downtown Denver. And I eventually ended up getting on the board of it. But I always realized that when I went and I helped other people who I felt you know, were in a worse situation than I was, I gained strength and inspiration just from seeing them continue on uh, in their plight and, and go through life. I knew that I could. And, um, you know, when I was at this low point in my life, depressed and stopped driving and my eyes had deteriorated, I went and I volunteered at this place. And one day when I was volunteering there, you know, doing showers and laundry, getting people into the showers and make sure they got the laundry done. You know, I, I felt like what I, what I say is like, I had a calling, uh, to run across America. Like it was something that I was supposed to do. It was like my entire being, uh, rested on the fact that I had to cross America on foot. And, um, it was at that point when, you know, I just sat out to, and that was the beginning of that 18 month journey of preparation and, and all that type of thing. Um, and you know, the, the other great thing too, that I I'd say, which hasn't been touched on at all in this whole uh, conversation yet is my mom. And uh, my mom's a single mom. She raised me and my brother, you know, didn't go to college, worked her tail off. And, um, you know, she was the ultimate, you know, strength in my life that I relied on, uh, you know, for being able to pull through different things. You know, she was there with me when I received my eye diagnosis. Um, she's been there with me in my highs and my lows. And actually she was the one person who followed me on my run across America in a sag wagon driving 12 miles an hour for 60 days. I mean, who else would do that for you? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a mom for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to love us enough to do that. It's gotta be a mom. I tell you what. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to tell you too, the other thing I'd say too is, uh, you know, move in with your mom at 50 years old and become homeless for 60 days. I mean, there were some, there were some times when we were out there when uh, I think both of us questioned whether we'd come back together and still love each other. I mean, you know, we say it jokingly, but I knew we would, but that was probably really, that was probably the only relationship I have in my life that could have withstood, you know, what happened, um, on that, on that run. I mean, you know, day after day, the torture, the torment and not, you know, giving up. I, you know, only, my mom is the only person who could have done that with me. And it was incredibly special too, uh, to have experienced that with her. And hopefully it was the same for her too, to see her son, you know, do something like that. So let me see if I got this right. You were divorced, you lost your job, you're going blind. So other than that, how are things going <laughs> before you started this run? <laughs> <laughs> They, they weren't. So, so the great parts were that I had, you know, three wonderful, uh, loving kids. Uh, They're I had, great. Yeah, I met them uh, my summer. girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. At the book signing. And uh, I had my mom, you know, and those were, those are, you know, that's my inner circle right there. Those five people. And, um, you know, that's what I need in my life. And that's what I had in my life. And, uh, that was, that was plenty enough to sustain me. I mean, you know, everything else, you know, it just, you know, when I ended up in that depression, it was like, I, I hadn't experienced that level of low before and that emptiness and just like, you know, there's no reason there it was no hope. I'd never felt that before. And I can, as I say here talking to you, I can remember it very, very vividly. Um, I'm glad it feels foreign to me now. Uh, but I also know that, you know, I've, had felt very jovial and you know, it, it can happen. Um, 
So, uh, but, but anyway, you know, what's gone on since then is, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I ran out of my, uh, depression when I did run across America, but I had a lot of time to think about, you know, different things and come to grips with a lot of different things that had taken place in my life or not had taken place in my life. And, uh, it's kind of interesting because as I came out the other end of that run, uh, I began being asked to you know tell the story to people. And I, I wasn't a speaker before and I kind of, you know, hacked my way through telling, telling the story and more and more people became interested and companies started asking, you know, to pay me to tell the story. And I realized, Holy cow, you know, I guess it is an incredible story. And I, um, I ended up, uh, you know, becoming a motivational speaker. And now I, you know, speak, uh, to, you know, companies and organizations and I, uh, do, uh, pro bono speaking to schools, service organizations, and churches, uh, as my give back to the community, you know, the community has given me so much. Um, but it is, you know, it's been quite a growth journey, uh, quite a growth journey as I've gone through that. And, you know, as we sit here too, and you had asked me, uh, to talk to me about, you know, my book coming out, that's really what I want the book to, you know, communicate. And hopefully it does because I tried to write it in a very personal and authentic and raw way, you know, not candy coated. Um, but it's really a story, you know, it's just a, a personal story. Like anybody has, everybody has an amazing story from my perspective, every person I meet, I'm just intrigued and amazed by. And, um, you know, this goes through, you know, some very difficult times and, you know, it, it demonstrates pushing through them and persevering through them, just like we all do. Uh, and eventually tells a tale of this, you know, crazy run across America. And, um, you know, I, I, I just hope that the book comes, uh, is, is very authentic and real and, and relatable. And, uh, hopefully my kids can be proud of it too. And I didn't embarrass them too much in writing it. <laughs> nice. Hey, I want to come back to the book and definitely the public speaking in a second, but I'm fascinated by the logistics of the run for those 60 days because I, I personally struggle to make sure I book my flight and my hotel correct when I go on a business trip. And that's for like three days. So I couldn't imagine trying to coordinate 60 days worth of hotels and food and all that. I'm fascinated by the logistics behind that. Can you take me through the 18 months of planning that went into that? Cause that, that just blows me away. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really great point because it's kind of interesting. A lot of times when I talk to people, they really focus on the actual run, which was, you know, only 60 days, but that's a long time too. But it took a year and a half straight of eight to 18 hour days of trying to coordinate this thing and, and get it ready. You know, there's a significant amount of different things within the logistics. One was actual funding this thing. Like I said, I was unemployed, uh, living on social security, disability income, and uh, really existing below the federal poverty level. And I figured out how much this thing was going to cost and how I was going to pay for it. And my best estimate on the cheap, this thing was going to cost 30 grand. Um, and that's a speed. So speed crossing, which is basically 50 miles a day or more. You know, a lot of people, if they do 40 miles a day, they're going to have an RV, a support vehicle, you know, bicycle, a bicycle, you know, five person crew team that would receive a stipend. And that right there, you know, would approach 50 to a hundred grand, but I knew I didn't have that money and I didn't have that type of support. Uh, so I ended up, um, you know, my mom was going to be the person who was going to go across with me. She was 70 years old. She was not going to drive an RV. So we ended up getting my brother's 12 year old minivan 
that he lent to us. It had a broken transmission we figured out <laughs> and had to repair that thing a couple times. And um, so, you know, we ended up getting the, the vehicle and the person. Next thing we had to do is figure out a route. And there really is, you know, there's no laws on, you know, a transcontinental crossing. In fact, uh, only about 250 people have ever crossed America on foot. And that goes clear back to the 1800s. Wow. Um, in some states, it's in all states, it's illegal to run on an interstate. Highways are usually legal, but it depends state by state, county by county, municipality by municipality. And me, with my legal background, at the beginning, I first started researching, you know, which states it was legal or illegal. And then I was like, you know, forget that. I can't, I, I can't try to go that in detail. I just basically got to stay off interstates, try and stay on highways. And if I get kicked off highways, I'll have to reroute, you know, in the midst of this thing. Um, when I first started trying to plan a route, you know, I, I went to Google and I put in, you know, a place on the West coast, and a place on the East coast. And I said, draw me a map. And what it routed was basically an interstate map. And I pressed walking directions and it added on extra 600 miles. And you know, it, Google doesn't care whether you're going through deserts or over mountains or whatever. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I was trying to do this. I just got to the point where I couldn't do it. My eyes were fatiguing. I was basically ended up going, you know, blind. My eyes get strained to a point during the day. If I'm focusing on you know, reading or something like that, where basically I can't see. And uh, I had a person who actually ended up, you know, I call an angel, uh, ended up uh, volunteering to help me with the run. And she ended up actually putting together a route and she rerouted it with basically like five weeks to go. I actually got my route put together. I mean, I was, you know, insane. I was, I was really worried that I didn't even have a route. I don't have a starting point and then an ending point. Um, the other part that was difficult, as you mentioned, we're sleeping. And the question we had was, where were we going to sleep? If it was me on my own, yeah, I wouldn't mind sleeping with other people, that type of thing. But you know, when I brought my mom along, she lived a fairly comfortable life and she's not going to you know, want to you know, sleep in a field or camp out or that type of thing. I mean, we needed to have motels. And, uh, I ended up actually having one of my neighbors across the street volunteered to book motels for us. And she would have to do it really one to two days at maximum in advance because we didn't know how many miles I was going or if I'd have to reroute or if there was, you know, construction on our route that we had. And really the trick there was to try to find a motel that was as close to my stopping point as possible. Um, sometimes a motel was five minutes away. Sometimes it was over an hour away and that would be an hour one way. And then the next morning would be an hour back to the start point. So what that would do is that would cut into you know, my rest and recovery and my mom's rest and recovery. And that really took a toll on us. Um, and we had to be as efficient as possible. Yeah. At the end of the day, there was no, there was no way for me and my mom and my team to be able to have the logistical preparation and being a hundred percent prepared. Like I was used to accustomed to, like I had ran my businesses before ran my life and really uh, you, you know, I ended up having to leap and, uh, trust that the net would appear. And it was, you know, it was really unnerving at the beginning to do that. But my mom and I, we had a conversation at the beginning, we we're getting ready to take off or go through a checklist. And we realized how many boxes we had that were unchecked. And we just looked at each other and said, we have to go and we'll figure it out as we go. And, um, you know, I know that we do that in life, but when I was setting out to do this thing and I'd done it before in life too, but never at this magnitude. And when you realize one of these unchecked, unchecked boxes could result in, you know, 
basically two years of preparation and, you know, this thing and, you know, we could close it out or, or stop it. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was unnerving, but what we learned was, you know, frankly, we're, we have amazing adaptability and resiliency and every day, Matt, there was something on this run that could have stopped it. You know, there were flat tires, transmission breakdowns, you know, I got hit by a truck, uh, just about got ran over a bunch of times. We got lost storms. And there's just a gazillion things that were perfect excuses to stop or take days off. Uh, but me and my mom at the end of the day, it was just, we had to continue to make relentless forward progress. And the thing that we knew was if we quit or gave in or gave up on our goal one day, it would make it that much easier to quit or give in or not achieve our goal in, in future days. So that was, you know, kind of the, the piece that, um, kept us going really. And that's a, a unique characteristic that I think my mom and I both have, which is basically just plain old stubbornness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that enabled me to get across. So you kind of glossed over getting hit by a truck. <laughs> I want to hear about that. What happened? <laughs> you just can't leave me hanging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, well, it, you know, I glossed over cause I, I've been hit by cars. Now I'm up to 16 times and uh, so it's not <laughs> the first time ever it's happened. Uh, but it is the first time ever at highway speeds has happened, but yeah, it wasn't like a direct hit. Otherwise, obviously I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, but that particular day, what had happened was, uh, I was in Missouri on a two lane road highway and I was running against traffic. So, you know, I could, I could tell that there would be something coming like an object. It would be getting bigger and I could hear the vehicle accelerating and you know, that's how I kept myself safe. And I, there was uh there was only a guardrail to my left and I was right on, you know, the white line. I can see the white against the black asphalt you know, pretty good. And uh, so I was hanging on that white line and I could tell that truck was coming because I could hear it coming. I can see something that was getting bigger as it was coming at me. So I started waving my arms like I always do. So they see me if they're texting or something. This thing just kept accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. And it ended up, it didn't move off at all, despite there being no traffic in the other lane or oncoming lane. And it just, you know, buzzed me. And I felt, you know, I, I turned sideways, leaned back over the guardrail and I don't know if you know these, you know, the trucks with the big metal mirrors that stick out on the side. Oh yeah. You know, that came flying by my nose, hit my, hit my hand and I felt the wheels go right by my feet. Yeah. I I had my, I cut the toe boxes off my shoes and I felt the wind on my feet. Anyway, what what happened was my hand got hit. It spun me around 360. You know, the truck kept going to hit. It did tap its brake lights. I could see the brake lights gone for like about five seconds. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, it didn't knock me down. Um, and I was, you know, I, uh, I was speaking in tongues, I would say <laughs> it's a barrage of profanity. and, uh, you know, the truck just drove off. It just drove right off. And uh, yeah, I, I thought my hand was broken and you know, my mom wasn't there. I ran up to where she was at and my hand was numb for like an hour. I couldn't move my fingers and but I could still run. Even if I had a broken hand, I knew my run wasn't over because I could, you know, we could cast it or whatever. And, um, you know, by the time it was evening, you know, my hand just throbbed. I, you know, iced it, stuck it in an ice bucket. So if it was broken, you know, what, you know, whatever. But the next morning I woke up and I was able to bend my fingers and do that. And I didn't think anything was broken. It just hurt really bad. And I kept running. 
And uh, wow. yeah, that was, uh, there, there were 10, there were 10 times actually on the run where I was running in the breakdown lane against traffic and cars decided for whatever reason to drive directly at me. And then they swerved at the last minute and just missed me. And I'd dive off into ditches or sometimes I froze or whatever. But you know, those are the 10 times. You know, so th- those are 10 boneheads or knuckleheads, as I say. And we, you know, that they're always out there, but there were hundreds of thousands of people that always swerved to miss me, you know, gave me plenty of room. They honked, they would pull over, ask what they could do to help. A lot of times people would pull up beside me and say, Hey, you know, jump in, where's your car broken down? And I'd say, ah, yeah, I'm running. And they're like, well, where are you running to? That'd be in Kansas. <laughs> I'd say like New York city. New yeah, York they, city. You know, their faces were just, <laughs> yeah. There would just be like this silence, you know, one time a guy actually even pulled out, you know, he just stopped pulled out a hundred bucks, empty his wallet, put it in my hand. And yeah, you know, I could hear him like, he was almost crying. He's like, just don't stop. He just drove off the other way. He gave me all the money he had. And it was amazing. You know, just, there's just, there's really great people out there uh, in America. That was, that was like the, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. And I share with my kids is there are so many wonderful people out there that just want to help you. It's great. Well, it goes back to you focusing on your, your kids and your mom back when you were homeless and on disability. If you chose to look at what was not there, that starts digging through the bottom of that hole. And yeah, you can focus on those 10, 12 people that were jackasses that, you know, swerve to scare you or hit you or not paying attention. But yeah, the thing that I hadn't really thought about it till you mentioned it is you probably drove past, you know, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people that were helpful or, or friendly. And that's, that's pretty cool. Tell me about the, the shoes too. Cause I saw the shoes yeah. in the book signing and that was, I thought a, a real interesting solution. What talk about cutting your shoes up. Yeah. Sure. So I actually, I, this is not something I invented. I actually learned it from my uh, uncle Ted Epstein who's since passed away. Uh, but my uncle Ted was really a pioneer for ultra endurance sports. And uh, I learned this trick from him when I was a teenager, actually. Um, I had witnessed him at the CU field house. It's an indoor track there, a one eighth mile track. And he was running, he had staged his own six day race. So basically he ran for six days around this indoor track, had a tent on the infield and he'd run eight hours, sleep an hour, run eight hours, sleep an hour. I mean, it was, it was insane. Uh, he ended up going 323 miles uh, on that one, I think. And I remember then, yeah, I saw his shoes and what, what always bought larger shoes when he was going to do this because he knew his feet would swell up because the fluids would always go down to his feet. Uh, but he, in order to prevent sizing up right away, he would always cut the toe box of his shoe, which means basically cut from the upper of your shoe, the cloth part of your shoe from your pinky toe over to where your big toe is. And you cut that off so that, you know, it's almost like a sandal, if you will. Um, I, I had never used this until actually I ran a race across Puerto Rico. It was a 183 mile run across Puerto Rico, super hot, super humid environment. And I was having just horrible blistering on my toes and my toenails. And, you know, I had blisters under my calluses and my feet were just a mess. We were drilling holes to get the pus out. And it was that point in time, you know, my mom was like, you know, let's cut the toe box off. So, you know, cut it off like uncle Ted did. And it, you know, relieved all the pressure. And uh, ever since then, that's how I run with, um, 
that's how I run is based with the toe box is cut off. And what happens is the reason why you get blisters a lot of times on your toes is because of friction and moisture. Either your toes are rubbing against your shoes. So that will cause blistering or there's moisture buildup. And uh, when you have the toe box cut off, obviously there's no friction because there's nothing to rub against and you always have, always have constant airflow. So you don't have that. And actually since then I've never lost a toenail uh, since. And, you know, a lot of people look at it and they think it's strange, but actually in the ultra world, the ultra ultra world, when you go like super long distances, a lot of people who run those distances use that trick at some point in time. Um, I just prefer to use it all the time. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's worked very well for me. Well, that could be your next business venture is making that a, a shoe for sale in the marketplace. Yeah, I'd love to consult with Hoka on that. I'm not sure I'd like to make it though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about the book, going back to the book. And yeah, you know, there's a joke when I go to California that everybody sitting in a coffee shop is always on page seven of their book or their screenplay. And then they start checking Facebook. Um, how did you go uh, take me to the, the process of the book? And again, looking through toilet paper tubes and getting this down and getting this published. I, I, I'm really curious about that process and the logistics behind getting that book published. Yeah. That was, uh, that was never on my radar. You know, a lot of times in life, people always say, you know, you should write a book. You know, that's common. You hear that all the time. And I had heard that before, but I'd never taken it serious. Uh, when it became serious for me was when I came back from the run and I had done more and more speaking, you know, speaking to school is one thing, but once you get in front of audiences and you're a paid speaker, apparently a lot of speakers have books and I would always get asked, you know, where's your book? I'd sit there like, I don't have a book. And, um, you know, when you give a talk for 30, 40 minutes, it's, it's very surface level of the real story and the entire story. And as I thought more and more about that and my kids had come to these talks, I realized my kids don't even know my whole story and they learned a lot about me during my talk. So I figured, you know, something, it would be something good that I can do for a legacy for my kids and my grandkids and you know, just my family to tell the story from my perspective. And uh, that was the genesis really of the book. And what I can tell you was it was uh, the actual writing of it. It ended up being about 370 pages. Um, and the actual writing of it took me nine months straight. And basically I kept that, I, that was like my job and I would do it eight to 12 hours a day. And what I can tell you for the first month, I was probably like that person at the coffee shop. I had not gotten past page one. I would start writing then I'd delete and write and delete and write and delete. And I'm not a writer. But eventually what ended up happening was as I got going, it just, you know, continued and, um, took me actually nine months to, for the actual writing. And then I had to figure out how to edit it and I self published. Um, and I found some really good partners. Uh, that's one thing I've learned in life is, you know, when you're out of your zone of expertise, make sure that you partner with subject matter experts. Otherwise, um, you're going to struggle for a long time and, you know, um, waste a lot of unnecessary time trying to figure things out. And, uh, I found a really great publishing house, Parker Hayden media, and they ended up helping me a lot with, uh, the actual cover art and, you know, getting the thing actually into a published book. And, you know, now it sells on Amazon on Kindle, iBooks, it's carried at bookstores. You can order through bookstores and you know, it was just, um, it was quite a journey. It was, it was, 
it was an, an amazing journey. Not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, you know, I'm extremely happy that I did it. And, uh, you know, another thing about the book too, that I would say is, uh, although I'm happy that I did it, it's also a really scary thing to do because I was very vulnerable, um, in what I put into that book. And it's just, you know, it's scary because, uh, I kind of put my entire, I put myself into it and it, I put myself out there and, uh, you're not sure what people are going to think about it, but at the end of the day, it's not a, I did write the book, book because I want people to think about me one way or the other. At the end of the day, it is just the truth and the truth is the truth. So I've kind of rested on that. It's kind of interesting as I've spoke with authors who've written memoirs and uh, everybody kind of goes through that same type of, they had warned me in a way that I would go through those types of feelings, but I never really understood or internalized um, the reality of it until I put it out there. And I realized that a stranger was picking up my book. And I was like, holy cow, they're going to know about everything. But uh, it's cool. Well, it sounds like that relentlessness uh, and the name of the book is running into the dark. I'll put this in the, the show notes when we publish this episode. Um, sounds like that relentlessness really helped with just that grind of just every single day, just chipping out pages as opposed to running miles. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of been my mantra in running and it's carried over into life is just make relentless forward progress. And, uh, it was in a book. This is not my quote, but somebody else's quote always was, you know, run. If you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, crawl, if you can't crawl, get somebody to drag you, just never stop moving forward. Right. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been my mantra as I've gone through very, very difficult times. I'm like, you just can't quit. You just can't, you know, Marshall Ulrich taught me, you, you know, as long as you don't take yourself out of the race or out of the game, you'll finish, you'll get it done. It's when yeah. you choose to take yourself out is when it all crumbles. You know, it, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. There's going to be tears, but uh, as long as you don't take yourself out of the game, you will get to that finish line. And you know, it's, it's true. And it builds character too. You know I mean? Putting yourself into uncomfortable situations, builds character. And, um, that's something also that I hope comes through in the book. You know, one of the things I talk about in my talks with schools is we've built this life or this environment where we think being comfortable is the goal, right? Like, uh, we have climate controlled office buildings or cars that we get into and the seats are heated and we have deep fog and air conditioning, all this stuff, you know, life is not necessarily supposed to be easy. Uh, all these creature comforts are not necessarily good things. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to be, get out there and shovel your own driveway yeah. and to sweat. Nobody's ever drowned from their own sweat. And, uh, you know, it's okay. And that actually does help us to become stronger and know that we can do more. Um, and I think that's a common theme. I hope that comes through within the book. Um, because I, it, that, that really is the one thing that's kept me, you know, positive and moving forward. So going back to being vulnerable and what you put in the book, was there one particular thing that you looked at for a very, very long time that you just, you know, initially is like, there's no way I just can't put this in. Was there one particular thing or a couple that just like this can't go in here, but you ultimately did. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple things, you know, um, 
One was my relationship with my father. Uh, my mom and dad got divorced when I was two and you know, that had always been a rocky relationship. And I, you know, I saw my dad every other weekend and, you know, I'd like to, you know, like anybody, I'm sure you, you always want to have close relationships with your parents, but that relationship was not what I had always wished it would be. And I had a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, um, just a lot of confusion and feelings that I'd never dealt with. And, uh, you know, that was extremely difficult and, uh, you know, forgiveness in that area was something that was very, very, uh, tough for me. Um, you know, I, I talked about it, you know, that's, you know, right at the very beginning of my book in the middle of the book. And then at the end of my book, and you know, I talked about it at the end of it, you know, in the writing of the book, I actually, you know, went and met with my dad and you know, told him I forgave him and, um, you know, hopefully gave him the things that he needed as well. And, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a tough thing and it's a, you know, it's a journey. Um, you know, there were also other things too, you know, there was a, uh, you know, breakup with a girlfriend and, you know, somebody that I loved and was very dear to very dear to me. And you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with, and it, you know, evaporated along the way. And, um, you know, just sharing, you know, those types of things and those emotions and, and, um, you know, and just that hurt. Uh, but what, you know, as I was writing it and I was deciding, you know, to put it out there, you know, I mean, what I realized was everybody has the same type of hurt. Everybody has, or will go through the same type of thing. It's not something to be shameful of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just being honest and vulnerable. And at the end of the day too, you know, I, I learned this actually as a result of going blind. I, um, I decided one day that I was going to run a race with a blindfold. So I would have absolutely no light perception and I would run it on a new course and I would get it. I would ask for help from a stranger. And I did that. And what I learned from that was if you are vulnerable and you trust another person, you will build connection with that person. That is how we connect. And in my worldview, I think connection with people is why we are on this earth and helping people. And as I wrote this book, I, I use that same principle, which was basically I needed to be vulnerable with everything and not censor anything. And I needed to trust that, you know, basically that tenant of humanity, that if you are vulnerable with another person, it gives them permission to be vulnerable too. And somehow that can positively impact their lives as well. And that would help us to connect. And, uh, you know, that's my leap of faith that I, that I rely and rest upon as I wrote this book and I put myself out there, you know, very, in a very vulnerable fashion. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's so much superficial stuff about, you know, the cars that you drive or clothes or your parents or whatever. And it's, you know, to some extent, I think it's masking, um, self-esteem issues, but yeah, if you can just peel that back and just go, here I am, this is what it is. You form that bond. And I couldn't agree with you more, man. It's the only thing that we have on this earth is the connections to friends and family and, and lovers and things like that. And the rest of it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. I think you got a great point there. You know, I, it's gotta be interesting as you talk to, you know, some different people that, 
do uh, you know endurance events. I think we all learn that as we do endurance events. When I was getting ready to run my first hundred miles, uh, there was a fellow who was mentoring me, and he'd ran several before, and he told me, uh, Jason, if you run a hundred miles, you will become a better person. And I thought this guy was like wacko Buddhist or, you know, smoking pot or God knows what, you know, like what, what is this <laughs> self transcendence thing by running a hundred miles? And as I went on and did it and he talked to me about it afterward, uh, he was right. And what he told me was, you know, when you run a hundred miles, Jason, you know, you are going to go through suffering and you know, there's going to be a point where you're going to have a choice to quit or not quit. And you are going to be stripped of all pretense, all of those layers of the onion, like you said, you know, all that ego, all of the extra facades that we carry will be stripped away and you will be netted down to your raw existence, which is basically eat, pee, and move forward. And that's it. And, uh, you know, it's, when you are in a very raw state like that, it really gives you a chance. You will find out and you will see yourself for what you really are at your core and then you get the chance to be very appreciative for the good that you are. And you also get a chance to see all of that opportunity also that you have to improve upon like anger or fear or resentment. Um, and then you will eventually become a better person because you will see yourself at your core. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great thing. And, and speaking of connections, I just got a text from uh, Christy and uh, <laughs> we worked out our custody schedule with her when you're having pizza back in December. So is, is it your weekend with her or my weekend with her? I can't remember. <laughs> well, I, ha- I, I was with her last weekend for dinner. So I think this weekend is your weekend. That's our common friend. <laughs> We'll have to sync up our calendars because I get lost. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. So um, talk me through Amazon with the public speaking. So you got your, you're getting your public speaking business and then Amazon calls. Let's talk about that. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, so I have a website up, uh, relentlessromero.com and I really don't do much to promote my speaking. I do let folks know that I do it. Um, but you know, I, I go about and I give talks and, uh, what, how Amazon had transpired was when I was working at general electric, uh, I had a colleague who ended up over at Amazon and, uh, that's how Amazon ended up hearing about me. And, you know, I, I got a request to go out to Seattle to Amazon headquarters and uh, give a talk to the team that actually uh, does the marketing and sales for the Alexa product. So, you know, like the Alexa Echo, the Alexa Show. Yeah. Alexa yeah. Like, like cars. So basically that product and sales marketing team, you know, they wanted to hear an inspirational story about uh, innovation, you know, not stopping teamwork, that type of thing. And, um, you know, I, you know, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, I find myself on a plane all of a sudden I'm sitting there at Amazon headquarters talking to this crowd and it's, it is amazing. And, uh, you know, what, what else is you know crazy interesting too is, you know, I'm getting ready actually to sign a box of books to send out to that group, uh, that I'd spoke to or select portion of that group, I guess. And, uh, you know, they want to continue, uh, following. So, you know, it's just the, the, the inspirational speaking thing has just been, um, you know, a real gift. And it's, 
it's been something as well that I advocate to as a career as I do lose my eyesight. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing. I, I, I could never have charted out this path in my life. If you had asked me when I was going to college, you know, what are you going to be in your life? You know, a, a public speaker, you know, that would have never came to my mind, but, um, you know, this really was about just pursuing my passion, which ended up being running. And as I ran, that ended up opening up a gazillion doors, uh, helped me, you know, uh, work through depression and manage that. Uh, eventually, you know, I had the seventh fastest crossing across America and now I have a, a public speaking crew. It's just, it's magical. That's amazing, dude. I want to be, I want to be you when I grow up. That's something that I've dabbled with a little bit doing some, you know, for business really, but I have been known to like being the center of attention on occasion. So I'd like to hopefully share a message and, and do that too. So it's, it's great to meet someone that has had that happen, you know, maybe by accident, but just with just effort and making that happen. So congratulations to you, man. That's incredible. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Well, Jason, this has been great. I mean, the second that uh, I, I saw you speak at the book signing and after we had beer and pizza, you know, at that uh, event, I wanted to talk to you. So this has been just great. And diving down deeper into the story has just been uh, really enjoyable for me. So I thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks a bunch. And, uh, you know, keep moving forward. Yeah. So tell us where we can find you. You said relentlessromero.com is your personal, your public speaking website. And then the book running into the dark, uh, running into the dark.com. Correct. Any other contact info you want to get out there for people to get in touch with you? No, those are really the two uh, main places. A lot of times I do get asked, uh, you know, where people can get the book and through a local bookstore, they can always order it. It's available in hardback, paperback and digital. Um, probably the easiest way to hunt one down is just through amazon.com. Excellent. Well, with that, uh, Jason Romero running into the dark. Thank you so much for the time. This has been, uh, really, really enjoyable. And I thank you very much. Thanks a bunch. Have a great 2018, Matt. Thank you so much, my friend. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast.